Well, our world talks a good talk about inclusivity and equity for all and the obliteration of the haves and the have-nots, but I have one surefire way to test their theory, and that's let all, let's all just jump on a commercial airliner tonight. Then we'll really see if we're all in this together, right? Because when you get on a commercial airliner, you know that it is the tale of two completely different experiences. Um, those near the front have a completely different ride than the rest of us, even though they might only sit six feet in front of us. Because they're served an actual gourmet meal on China and Crystal by very attentive, cheerful flight attendants, ready for their every whim. And we've got a little snack, and I will say a little snack, foil or plastic bag that we can't quite get open. <clears throat> they, of course, get to stretch out, maybe even sleep, while we are sitting in proximity that should only be reserved for newly engaged couples. <laughs> um, and it's with strangers who are getting stranger by the minute. Have you noticed that? They get moist, hot towels to refresh themselves as the plane is going down. We just get to bask in our attractive travel scum as we come in for a landing. And on every flight, <clears throat> there's a point in the flight where uh, the flight attendant lets the curtain down. You know, that, that Berlin Wall, that barrier of uh, the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the Temple Mount. You're not supposed to see what's going on back there. And in fact, a voice will come on over the intercom and tell you when you get to cruising altitude that you're not allowed back there. You're not allowed in their holy of holies one single bathroom for eight people. No, you're going to join the 200 people in the two at the back of the plane, right? It's very clear. It feels a lot like the cool girls table at high school, doesn't it? Very, very exclusive. But as inclusive, tolerant, and open-minded as we like to say we are, we are not really. We'd like to act like that curtain does not exist. But that's really not it. We just would like to be, it's not that we don't want it to exist, it's just like we'd like some of what they've got. Right? Even as Christians, we have a deep desire for beauty, for power, for privilege. And we wouldn't mind having some of it. Lord willing, we will take this piece of scripture to heart tonight, though. It's a tough one. I'm going to warn you. We're all on this plane together, headed to the New Jerusalem. It's going to be great. But we want to make sure that we're not treating the people behind the curtain or in coach or in the dreaded two rows right by the bathrooms any different than anybody else. We're all going to the same destination. And we need to treat all these people with harmony and love and grace. So let's take it one chunk at a time tonight in James. We're going to start with verses 1 to 4. 
He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That verse right there, the last one we read, is a great summary. When you make distinctions or you choose to favor one person over another, especially because you think you're desirable, is it not that you have bad motives? That's what that evil thoughts is all about. This is a very tough topic. And uh, he starts with the words, my brothers. Last time I was up here, he used that too. James, remember, he's reminding us that he's one of us that he loves us, that he cares about us, that he's our big brother. And sometimes we take things better from people we love and care about. And he's counting on that. And I, too, am counting on that because I'm just your sister, tasked with a tough topic. Because I'm going to tell you that I'm affectionately going to call this that I'm going to poke my finger in your eye text tonight. Um, so let's all watch out. The thrust of it is in the first verse. It says, show no partiality as we hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We cannot be partial because it's incompatible with being a Christian. That's the summary of that sentence, <clears throat> that verse. We can't show partiality. It's incompatible with being a Christian. But what does it mean to be partial? The word is defined as to lift your face up to to look at or regard with favor. One writer said it was being unduly influenced by a person's power, money, or prestige. But in my simple thinking, it's just giving someone special attention to get something back. Giving someone special attention to get something back, and that's why those evil and bad thoughts and motives are part of it. It's not just being kind, it's being kind with an agenda. Hmm. It's selfish. And James says that a Christian should never do it. So for point number one, let's write it like this. Don't love with strings attached. Don't love with strings attached. Now, the concept of being partial is prohibited throughout Scripture. It is often coupled with something called taking a bribe which is taking money to give you this favor. God hates that. He's against it, and he won't do it. Deuteronomy 10, 17, and there will be lots of verses tonight. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribes. And you know, he doesn't want us to do that either. So in Exodus 23, 8, he said to us, you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. When we treat people differently to gain some advantage, it clouds our judgment. It is self-centered. It is manipulative. It's conniving. 
But why can't Christians just give people attention for things like that? I mean, what's the big deal? Seriously, come on, why are you so intense about this? It's got so quiet in here. How come? Well, verse 1 says that we're supposed to show no partiality as we hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's wrong for Christians to use other Christians for personal gain and glory because Christ is the one we're supposed to be giving glory to. We're supposed to be working together to bring him glory. And when you're partial, when you play favorites, it's about you. It's not about him. It takes the focus off Jesus and puts it squarely on you and what you're trying to gain from that situation. Now, the word favoritism is not found in secular writings back then because it was a perfectly acceptable thing to do to use people to your advantage. And it's not so different out there now, is it? Not so different in our world. Um, But we don't want that to be the case here. We don't want people here to be used so that we can gain some benefit or some advantage. We never want that to be the reputation of our church that we would say to our siblings, I'll love you, but I need you to do this for me. Or I'll love you if you give my child that advantage. This is acting nothing like Jesus would act. So how did he treat people? How did God treat people? Well, the Bible tells us he sends them the rain on the evil and the good, even those who put their hand up in his face. It says that if we seek him, He will let himself be found by us. And when we come into his family, we get all of his benefits. He is not aloof to some and warm to others. When you become his child, he gives you unconditional love forever. That's how God treats you. Ephesians 6, 9 says there is no favoritism with him. He cares nothing about your clothes, your jobs, your wealth, your weight, or the number of followers you have in social media. Here's nothing about any of that. And he tells us what he thinks of people using people in Luke 12, excuse me, Luke 14, 12 to 14. Luke 14, 12 to 14. He says, when you give a dinner or banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers, relatives, rich neighbors. Wait a minute, that's our guest list. Your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and your rich neighbors. Don't invite your usual guest list, he says, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When we are self-forgetful, he's the one who will reward us. Playing favorites is the opposite of Christ-likeness. Christians must forget about themselves entirely, like Jesus did. He came to give, serve, and sacrifice. He did not come to take, use, and manipulate. Even the Jewish leaders saw it in Jesus, and in Matthew twenty-two sixteen, they said this, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. That was the way the pagan people described our Lord. One writer said that Jesus looked at a person's potential. In Peter, he saw a rock. 
In Matthew, he saw a disciple and someone to write his story. And in the woman at the well, he saw an evangelist. He accepts all who follow him, and he wants us to do the same. But this does not mean that you can't have friends. The Bible is clear. In many places, it talks about us having friends and people who will support us. It talks about having an Aaron and a Hur who will lift your hands when you're in battle, and they'll be there for you. He talks about how important it is to not be alone when you fall down. He describes how strong a three-chord strand is. You can have friends. You should have friends. You need friends. Yes, you need them. And you're going to click with certain people, whether it's because you serve together, you're in the same life stage, or maybe you have the same hobbies. There's nothing wrong with having friends, but you should not be spending all your time with them. We should love all Christians, and we should live like Romans 15, 5 to 7 commands us. It says we're supposed to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Now, I trust that none of us is out there deliberating, deliberately looking for a, an envelope of money because we did a favor for someone else. None of us is trying to do that. But there are a lot more subtle ways that we can use people. Like butting up with someone <clears throat> who you know can go to put in a good word for your child at the Christmas musical auditions. <laughs> or someone who can make sure that your teen gets in what you consider to be the best group at True North. Or maybe getting you the roommate, the room, the floor that you want at women's retreat. Or the ticket to Saturday Christmas coffee. <laughs> we can all use one another, sadly, to that end, right? We can use each other and befriend each other in hopes of getting investment tips, recommendations for our college, kids' college applications, decorating advice, or access to their vacation homes. It's natural to want friends, but some of us here are frankly too eager to be in the hip, cool, young, popular squad of girls at Compass. It's your goal, it's what you're trying to achieve. Some of us can even maneuver to get as much face time as possible with the leaders and decision makers of this church so they can drop names, they can talk about it in conversation, they can post about it on social media. It's not good, ladies. We are all capable of rallying behind the scenes to get what we want. This self-promotion needs to stop. The Bible commands us to be kind to all. And there are many places, here are just a few of them. Titus 2.28 says that. Ephesians 4.32 says that. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says that. But we cannot do it with ulterior or evil motives. We need to be kind to all with pure motives. We need to love all of our siblings, the smart and the less than smart, the rich and the financially challenged, the outgoing and the more quiet, the pretty and the not so much, those who have a lot of nice things and those who don't. We must live out 1 
John 3, 16 and 17. It says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? A Christian's love should be pure, it should be selfless, and it should not use people. And then in verse 2 and 3, James gives us this scathing illustration. Two visitors showing up at our church. And he uses the plural you to say y'all. This wasn't one usher's problem. This was a pattern in the church. And the rich guy who looks and smells good and is powerful, we know that because he wears rings. Only those who were powerful wore those fancy rings. He comes in and he gets ushered to the front of the room because he knows these are the best seats in the house. So do y'all. Y'all tables right here. They're the best seats in the house. So this superstar, he's escorted right up here. And uh, you better believe that guy who brought him up here, he wanted to be seen doing that. And frankly, he wanted the guy he was escorting to notice that he was the one doing it. And then the poor man came in too. He was dirty and smelly, wearing hand-me-downs. And it doesn't even, it, it says he was basically taken far away. It says he was sat over there. And it's even worse. What the, what the usher in that moment did to him was even worse. Because he didn't even give up his own seat for the visitor. And he made him sit on the floor. And he left him there because he was unimportant. At best, this is indifferent, and at worst, it's totally rude and completely shameful that this would happen in the body of Christ. I'm embarrassed for them. I'm embarrassed when I hear of people in our church that might have been treated that way. This Christian man who walked in, or Christ seeker, maybe he wasn't a Christian, but he was a Christ seeker, he'd never shown up at church, was put in the worst possible place in the room. Now, there are lots of words of caution I could give, and I've already shared a lot of them and just in discussing this, but I also need to talk to those of you who have it all together, those with the power and the money and the youth and the beauty and the things that are desirable to others. Um, there are not just those that are trying to buy their way in. There are also those in here that are selling themselves. Don't use the other people in this room like that. We need to remember we're all family here. We need to remember what Jesus has done for all of us. And we need to stop this only being willing to put our time and money into things if we get what we want in return. I saw this in the worst possible way in the early days of my husband's ministry here in South County. Over 30 years ago, we came 35 years ago, over 30 years ago, um, there was a very powerful gentleman in our church he was a CEO of a very, um, uh, well, it's a company that's even around today, and you buy their products all the time. But I will not tell you who it is. He offered to give his new senior pastor, Pastor Mike, $150,000 for our building program. That was such a huge amount of money. Um, his thing was, I'll give you that money, but I'll give you that money only if you agree to only do traditional music and hymns in the service every week from now on. 
Well, we were here to reach those people out there for Jesus Christ. But we really need the money. You know, we're about the size of uh, the groups that we sent out to plant. Maybe 100 people? There's not 100 people of leaders and spark plugs like we send out. We didn't have a, a church behind us bankrolling us. We were trying to build this little tiny church now when I think of it compared to what we have here across the freeway. And my husband was 26 years old. <clears throat> he needed the money. But you know what he needed more? He needed this quote-unquote godly couple to help our fledgling young church. Thinking God may wanted to do some housekeeping, but your pastor could not be bought. And the people left the next day. And many other people have left over the years because they too didn't get what they want from the leaders in our church. So let me say it again, don't use whatever power you have, your hipness, your money, your coolness, your popularity, even your spirituality, to get what you want. This God sees everything. And 1 Peter 1.17 promises that every one of us will stand before God and be judged impartially. So we all should live in fear here on earth. God will not tolerate people messing with his kids and his church. So one man was honored and one was disgraced in this illustration at church. And we can be guilty of exactly the same thing for the flesh and blood women who walk in our door because in a moment we're sizing them up and we're making assumptions about them based on their dress, based on their size, based on their clothes, based on their hair, none of which matters. Instead, we should be greeting them and living with them, like Philippians 2 says, doing nothing from selfish ambition or pride, which, by the way, is to get ahead. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. The people who call this place home, we need to love unconditionally, and we need to spur on to more holiness. That's our job. So how do we avoid using people? Well, for one, you constantly check your motives. Check your motives all the time. Why are you reaching out to that lady? Is it for you or is it for her? Why are you posting that thing? Is it because you're trying to exalt Christ or yourself? Check your motives all the time. And stretch yourself, even as you drive here. Pray, 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 pray that when you walk in the door, you will come here to give, not to get. And that that will be your commitment. And here's a tough one, because this is what some of us struggle with. We look across the room, and we see that lady. We know she needs help, but all we can see is drama. And so what do we do? We avert our eyes. We pretend we don't see that problem. And we hope that someone else will take care of them. Because for some of us, that's our struggle. Putting them first by embracing whatever it is that we have to embrace to love them. But we need to love others sacrificially and without strings attached. Okay. So we don't love with an agenda. How should we treat other Christians? James goes on, verse 5. 
He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those? And by the way, he's saying, listen up, this is important. That's what that listen is. It's almost like he's yelling it right there. Listen up. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich, the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? James says we need to stop using people to better ourselves and put Jesus' glasses on instead to see people the way he sees them when they walk in the door. Or point number two, see people as God does. See people as God does. God is not swayed by people's outsides like the rest of us are. And that can only remind us of 1 Samuel 16, where you went in your homework. I hope you're all doing your homework still. This is where Samuel was tasked with finding the second king of Israel. The first king was the people's pick. And even though he was very regal and tall and powerful, he wasn't the right guy because he did not love and serve God rightly. So Samuel is sent by God to Jesse's house. First son walks in. He's tall and brave and good-looking. And if they were looking through their eyes, he would have been the second king of Israel. But God says in verse 7, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse prated five more of his good-looking, brave sons before him, all of which would have seemed in our eyes to be good choices, and the verdict, the verdict is exactly the same. Neither has the Lord chosen this one, all five times. Until, of course, they bring David in, right? The teenager, not even fully grown, but he was a man after God's own heart, so he was chosen, even though he himself would be unfaithful. What does that prove? It proves that God sees people differently than we do. God looks at their heart, their obedience, the fruit or evidence of their salvation, the way they love him and the way they love his people. Those are the things God's looking for. Not how much money they have in the bank, not how many extra pounds they're carrying around, and not the sin of all sins in our youth-loving culture, how many laps they've made around the sun already in their life. He didn't care about any of that. God looks at what's inside and the evidence that they're really God's kids that is poured out in their lives every day. It reminds me of a court case in Chicago in the 1840s. It cap captured the attention of the world. It was over some patenting of some new fangled farm equipment. But it was so important that uh, they got some high-powered lawyers from the East Coast to come and try the case and they took it away from the country bumpkin lawyers that were trying it. A man named Edwin Stanton was in charge of that case and trying it. And he decided because there was, of course, the judge that was a local, that they should keep one lawyer on from that small town. But when these Ivy League trained lawyers met the one guy they kept, they were stunned. He was poorly dressed, he was disheveled, he spoke with a really strong accent and saw, said lots of hick-like things in the courtroom. And so they did what any well-respected, rich, fancy New York lawyer or playground bully would do. 
And following Staten's direction to do away with the ape, they ditched him. They ditched this guy for the whole trial. They didn't eat their meals with him. They told him the different time for the court, you know, starting every day so that he would show up late and he would miss half the stuff that was going on. They acted like punks because this man was unimportant to them. Well, Stanton and his team, they won that trial. And he became more and more famous, so much so that he was actually chosen to be the Secretary of War during the Civil War under President Abraham Lincoln. The man, Stanton, had formerly known as the ape. Because you see, Abraham Lincoln, his significance was not known until much later in his life. Stanton could not see anything but Lincoln's outsides. Let that be a caution to us all. Continuing that image of rich and poor, God goes on here in verse 5, and he says that God chose the poor. He chose the poor to save. And it was just as shocking to their audience as it is to us today, because we assume that people with looks and brains and money and power would be something that God would want on his team. Um, Even people that would we would say, would have been blessed by God. It's confusing to them and to us that he chose the poor. But God values things differently than we do. And he chose them just because he chose them. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, 7, 6 through 8, proves this. It's the passage that says Israel was not chosen because it was a mighty nation. God chose to love them just because he chose to love them. In fact, he says, you were smaller than anyone, but I chose to love you and place my love on you. Men make superficial distinctions. God does not. In fact, it is often those without power, wealth, or influence that are most responsive to God. It's the reason that God gave us this warning in Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 13. When they were perched on the edge of the promised land, he said this to the group, He said, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you these great cities that you didn't build, houses with all these good things that you didn't fill, cisterns you didn't dig, vineyards, olive trees you didn't plant, when you eat and you are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You see, when people have a lot, they forget what God has done. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 19, 24, that it's harder for a rich man to become a Christian than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? That little tiny thing, I don't know how you do that. I guess you just, I don't know, you have to liquefy him probably to get him through there. But it would be a lot of work, right? I've actually seen this in my own family because my family, by worldly standards, has it all. Wealth, power, jobs, family, health, outrageous vacations. And in the 40 years I've been a Christian, as I've shared the gospel with them, only one has surrendered their life to Christ. And it was only when the bottom dropped out of their life. Right? But sometimes we can see what we need when we're not distracted by all the stuff. You see, the put-togethers, it's hard for them to become Christians. Not because God doesn't pick them, just because there's obstacles, so many obstacles in their way. It's why Orange County is such a tough place to do ministry. To the rest of the world, we are uber rich. 
even if we have one car, a modest, you know, one door, tiny closet in our house, or only enough in our pantries for a couple days, we are still richer than anybody on the planet. It's hard for us to trust in God. We'd much rather trust in ourselves. So God chose the poor, but we tend to choose the rich. We tend to want the rich and the powerful around us. Um, but everybody comes to God the same way, humbly embracing what he did for them on the cross. I love the way God continues that imagery of rich and poor, but he says here that he made the poor rich in faith. Isn't that a good phrase? He made them rich in faith. And it's confirmed in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. You went there in your homework too. It's the one that says not many of you were wise by worldly standards or powerful or noble. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He didn't choose the most impressive people, and we shouldn't either choose them to try to be best friends with them. James says we should see others like God does based on their love and commitment to him. We're all going to be living beside each other in New Jerusalem soon anyway, so let's start thinking that way. God is clear, though, also, when we judge others, sometimes we use the wrong grading scale. We make lots of mistakes. And in verse 6 and 7, it's like God is kind of delineating those mistakes by the way they judge people. You know, like I said, he chose the poor, we usually choose the rich. Look at all the problems they had that came from the rich in verse 6 and 7. They were responsible for their worst difficulties. They were the ones who hurt them, persecuted them, took them to court, and said bad things about them. And, and it's the same out there today. It's the rich and powerful that are taking people to court over cakes and wedding pictures and how they can counsel someone who is in sin, according to the Bible. And someday soon you know it's going to be an unwillingness to use pronouns or the fact that we will not cave because Christ is the only way to salvation. It will also be them who lead the charge against us when we say you can't change your gender no matter what you do. Homosexuality is wrong. Parents should be informed of their child's surgery and complete forgiveness of sin, even outrageous sin, is why Jesus came, to forgive us and cleanse us of past sins and mistakes. It doesn't make sense when we try to please the rich and powerful. It didn't work for them. It's not going to work for us either. But God has always given special attention to those who have less or are in more difficult situations. In the Old Testament, God made sure that these people could bring a modest sacrifice to the temple. They could bring pigeons instead of bulls, right? He also made sure that um, if they had to sell their land because they were in debt, that they would sell it to a family member so that they could keep it in the family, a relative. He also made sure that things like they weren't charged interest or if they were in debt, that after you know, that year of jubilee, they could be released. And that the fields in Israel were not harvested all the way to the edges because he was taking care of them. And you know Jesus, he sat with people who were needy and spent time with them all the time. He took care of them, he encouraged them, he healed them, and he gave them their most important need ever, and that was that they would be forgiven of their sin by dying on the cross for them. Jesus loves sinners whether they have a lot or a little. Think of these people that crossed his path. The woman at the well, Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, the rich young ruler. He had time for all of them. It didn't matter whether they had money or not. He spent time with them all. And of course, you don't have to be poor to be saved because if you did, all of us would be in serious trouble. You don't think you're rich, but you are. 
and I don't just mean spiritually. You are rich, even financially. But God also saved Job and David, Solomon, Zacchaeus, uh, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Philemon, Lydia, Matthew, all rich people. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. He saves us all. We all come to faith because of our trust in him and because of our heart, not what we have. So how can we love others at Compass? Like Jesus did, I have seven, A to G. A, pray for yourself. I don't know if you remember this sermon, but it was, uh, I don't know, a couple months back, but Pastor Mike gave a sermon and told us we should be loving others organically. We should be loving others from the heart, not just because it's our duty or responsibility as Christians, but we should love them because we love them. Have you been praying for yourself for that? That you would have real love for people? The next one is letter B, greet people, all people, everyone. People who sit at your table, but people who don't sit at your table. People who sit across the room when you come in here. Greet all of them. There are so many quality women in this church. It's one of the reasons why as I mentor our staff wives, I make sure that I get them together. And we get together every other month because I want them to see and get to know and befriend and have fellowship with all these amazing women not just the people in their department. You know, it's true of you guys too, and you don't have to wait for someone else to set it up. You have women everywhere that are wonderful, quality Christian sisters, which leads us right to the next one. <clears throat> when you go to small group today, I'm gonna ask you to sit with someone you don't know and let her see, invite them to coffee or lunch. Invite them to coffee, lunch, breakfast, dinner, a walk. Invite them to something. And if that first person says no, ask the next one. If they say no, ask the next one. Keep asking till someone says yes. Some of us are way too, oh, I did it. They said no, I'm done. <laughs> okay, but we are kind of busy people. It does not mean that they hate you because they had to say no. Okay. Uh, letter D, pray for others. Yes, in your small group. But how about others that you will never meet? On the prayer chain, they are in dire need of prayer. You will grow to love them as you pray for them. Letter D, or E, sorry, join things you don't normally join. E, join things you don't normally join. ABF, HFG, trot the turkey off, do partners. Like I said, there's so many quality women. Go to something new. Meet some more amazing women. Don't just sit with your friends, right? Okay. Um, letter F, this is a good one. Ooh, this is a hard one. Be flexible with WBS leaders. Be flexible with WBS leaders. You know how you'd knock their socks off if you walked up to them and they said, you know what? Wherever you need me, I'm willing to go. You need me another group? No problem. That group needs a leader? Sign me up. You need to multiply our group and make it two? I'm with you. I will not resist. I will not complain. I will not make your job like a root canal. I will make your job a joy. I will not be the one who says, but I've been with these people for 10 years. I can't, I can't be in another group. Yes, you can. We have amazing, wonderful women in this church. And what you will find is when God shuffles the chess pieces, you're the one who wins. You get blessed by serving and being served by more women in this place. And the last one, letter G, is do whatever God prompts. Do whatever God prompts. 
This is where you need to listen to who God needs to tell you needs some help right now. Some of the gals in here, they just need a smile. But some of them need you to sit with them because they are hurting. They need you to call them tomorrow and make sure they're okay. And only God knows their insides and can help you to make those things known <clears throat> to you. I got the opportunity to be with a more seasoned saint just recently and have this experience. We were both going to something that was challenging for us. And um, this gal, I think she even comes to Tuesday night Bible study. I see her here, but we never have this long conversation. God allowed us to cross paths this day. And by the end of our time together, we were hugging each other eagerly and just telling each other what an answer to prayer we were to each other and how God had used the circumstances even in the days leading up so that we would be at this trying circumstance together. We would look across the way and I'd go, oh, and she'd go, oh, and we were like, oh, this is great. We were each other's answer to prayer. I love you, Jane. I don't know if you're here, but I love you, Jane. And I'm so thankful for the quality women in our church. Okay. So we shouldn't give people love with strings attached. And we got to see people like God does. So what is there? You finish James. Does that mean we're done? Nope, not done. Um, because that's not, not all that scripture says. We've talked about how to not give people special attention, but there are groups in the Bible we are supposed to give special attention to. The Bible is clear. There's a handful of those. People who have been strategically and sovereignly put in place in our lives, in our world, in our church, in our home, and we are supposed to honor them, respect them, look up to them. We should, point three, give special honor where God says. Give special honor where God says. I'm not going to belabor this point. I'm going to quickly give you six groups of people that we should be giving special attention to because God says they deserve it. Okay, in no particular order. The first is found in Leviticus 19.32. This one says, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. The first people in the church that we should give special honor to is, number one, the elderly. The elderly. God wants you to care for and pay attention to those who have been here longer than you have that are farther down the road than you are. First Timothy even tells us if these older people mess up, which they all will, and so will we, that we're supposed to be extra careful with how we correct and encourage them. Did you know that? We're supposed to show them that measure of respect and be kind to them, even if we have to correct them. So how are you doing with that? Spend any time with anybody who's not in your life stage? Do you greet them? Do you love them? Do you sit with them? Do you ask for their wisdom? Well, I'm sure that we could all do a little bit more to care for the elderly. And what about those who can't be here? We have a lot of elderly who can't be here tonight. Do you love them, care for them, call them, encourage them? Just let them talk to you? We need to show respect for that group. Uh, the next group we are showed respect to comes from 1 Peter 2, 17. 1 Peter 2, 17, it says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Boo, right? No. We are supposed to honor our government and our leaders. That's number two. Our government and our leaders. 
I didn't say you have to believe the same thing. I didn't say they have to have the same worldview. But God placed our leaders where they are right now. And we most definitely should be praying for them. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 commands us to do that. We must beg God to work through them, and we must obey the laws that they lay down for us. Romans 13, 1 to 7 says that the government was given by God, and if we resist them, we are resisting him, and we deserve whatever punishment they mete out to us. But verse 7 is the real zinger there. It says, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes, revenue to whom revenue, respect to whom respect, and honor to whom honor. What does that look like? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like taking pot shots of them with your friends or on social media. It does look like submitting to them as long as they do not ask us to disobey the law of God. Okay, the next group we need to honor is number three, our bosses. Ephesians 6, 5 to 7 says, bond servants, that is employees, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord, not to men. Wherever you find yourself employed, you need to respect those that are your bosses. You need to do your most excellent work for them as though they were Christ himself. That's what this says. And if you can't, then you should change jobs. I mean, we can't, there is nothing else on this that we're allowed to change up here. But you can change your boss. So if you're at that opportunity and you can't do it, change up your boss. Okay. The fourth group to show honor to is number four, our parents. Our parents. Now, obviously, we know this one's in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 12 says, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. It's a command with a promise that you will get long life if you will do this simple command. Huh. You're saying simple, you don't know my parents. Yes, but we are supposed to love and honor them, it says. It doesn't say because they deserve it. It says because God commands it. And in fact, 1 Timothy 5, 4 and 8 says that honoring them translates into taking care of them. And it says, if you don't take care of them, you are worse than a non-Christian. That's not good. Nobody wants that one, right? Oh, yes, I'm worse than a non-Christian. No, we want to we obey this command because God says we should respect our parents. And here's the one you probably thought of when you thought of leaders or people to respect. Duh, I said it. Number five, <laughs> your leaders and your pastors. This is probably what you thought of, your leaders and your pastors that you owe special respect to, but it's only one of the six. First S, 5, 12, and 13 says, we should respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. This is not just our pastors. This is your women's Bible study leaders. This is your small group leaders. This is your ministry directors at church. And First Timothy says they deserve double honor if they do their job well. It is our responsibility to give these people in our lives special attention, respect, honor, 
And usually that means doing the kinds of things they're teaching you or asking you to do without resistance and complaint. The counsel they give you actually doing whatever it is they say to do, even if you might not completely agree. Giving them honor means responding well to their leadership. And for one, I would just say, remaining here and being faithful, even when you don't get what you want, is another way that you can respect their leadership. Unless, of course, they ask you to disobey scripture. Then you're out of here, right? The last person that God expects you to show special attention to and respect is letter, or excuse me, number six, your husband. Your husband. If you are married here, God is very clear that your husband is supposed to be your number one earthly priority. You love and give him special attention only after God. You're like, no, 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 not after, after my job, after me, after my kids, after my grandkids. No, no, no. <laughs> he is your priority of that special attention and energy that you have after God. That's it. Colossians 3.18 says to submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 says, let the wife respect her husband. Our husbands should be given this honor and respect. It translates into things like listening to them. I mean, really listening to them, giving them your attention when they speak. Even though you can multitask, you shouldn't when they're speaking to you. It also means following their leadership and not just your own or how you can manipulate them to do what you want them to do instead of what they want to do. It also means that you would honor them before your kids, before your parents, before your friends with this piece of your equipment. And it means serving him, putting him before yourself, no matter how late it might be in the evening, putting him before yourself. Those are all ways to honor and respect and give special attention to your husband if you are married. Okay, so there's a whole group of people that we should be giving special attention to. Praise God that he is our model of this kind of love and respect for people in the body of Christ and that he gives the Holy Spirit to help us do that and to help us love without strings attached. See people like he does and give special honor where he says to. Now with the Christmas season almost upon us, people are already decorating, buying presents, maybe you're taking your Christmas pictures, I know we are, next week, and uh, I came across a story of maybe not the most spiritual Christmas song, let me say that again, it's the, not the most spiritual of Christmas songs, but it was a childhood favorite, and I have to say I have more respect for it than I did when I read the story of how it began. Maybe it's a childhood favorite of yours too, it's called Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Maybe the only time those words have happened from this stage. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was uh, first created as an advertising gimmick, even though it has become one of the most beloved Christmas carols of all times. In 1949, the department store Montgomery Ward, some of you might remember that one, ad asked their advertising executive, Robert May, to write a poem. It was a poem for Santa to give out to the children that came to the department store. And so Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was first published as a little tiny booklet that Santa gave away to the children. 
They gave away 2.5 million of them the first year. By 1946, it was more than 6 million that they were giving out. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was first set to music in 1949 by Robert May's brother-in-law, Johnny Marks. And the privilege of recording Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was something that both Bing Crosby and Dinah Shore passed on. Too bad, so sad. <laughs> the singing cowboy, Gene Autry, he did record it. And the rest, as I say, is history because Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is the second most beloved Christmas song of all time, only behind White Christmas, and sold over 25 million times. But what makes Rudolph so popular? Is it the courageous little reindeer? Or the cute Hollywood, like, Christmas special that comes on? I might have thought that until I realized what they were trying to say. No, really, the thing that makes Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer is the grace is, is so great, is the grace that he received from Santa, of all people. You see, Rudolph had a problem. Rudolph was different than everybody else. He was excluded because of it, because he had a weird nose, right? It was big, it was shiny. It was a liability, as far as he and the other reindeer, and frankly, his parents even tried to cover it up. It was a problem, but not when the fog rolled, on, rolled in on Christmas Eve. It was no longer a problem because Rudolph was the one that Santa picked out to do an important mission, to save Christmas that Christmas Eve. All because Santa showed him grace. I can't believe I'm saying this, but Santa is a good example for us. <laughs> of how we should treat people with grace, kindness, dignity, honor, and not see our differences as liabilities, but as something that could be used for good, right? I'm not gonna say let's be more like Santa, okay? But I will say it would be good for us to learn from Jesus and the way he treats us with grace and kindness and honor. And let's extend that to one another as we fly on this commercial airliner to our final destination. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you so much for the way you extended your grace, your love, your forgiveness, your kindness to each one of us. And um, I just, I realize how big that is, even that sentence, how enormous it is to say that. Thank you for saving us, Lord. I pray, God, that you would help us now to take this difficult truth and let it per percolate down to the places that it needs to in each one of our own hearts. Because all of us have different things to apply, to learn, to do business with you in regards to in our hearts because of a topic like this. And thank you, Lord, that we're never alone. You've given us your Holy Spirit to help us. And you've given us an amazing group of sisters right here to encourage us and spur us on. Help us to have great group time. Help us to see each other like you see us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.